Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. From where I sit, Every cloud platform out there biases for something. Some bias for offering a managed service around every possible need a customer could have. Others bias for, hey, we hear there's money to be made in the cloud. Maybe give some of that to us. DigitalOcean, from where I sit, biases for simplicity. I've spoken to a number of DigitalOcean customers, and they all say the same thing, which distills down to they can get up and running in less than a minute and not have to spend weeks going to cloud school first. Making things simple and accessible has tremendous value in speeding up your time to market. There's also value in DigitalOcean offering things for a fixed price. You know what this month's bill is going to be, you're not going to have a minor heart issue when the bill comes due, and that winds up carrying forward in a number of different ways. Their services are understandable without spending three months of study first. You don't really have to go stupendously deep just to understand what you're getting into. It's click a button or make an API call and receive a cloud resource. They also offer very understandable monitoring and alerting. They have a managed database offering. They have an object store. And as of late last year, they offer a managed Kubernetes offering that doesn't require a deep understanding of Greek mythology for you to wrap your head around it. For those wondering what I'm talking about, Kubernetes is, of course, named after the Greek god of spending money on cloud services. Lastly, DigitalOcean isn't what I would call small time. There are over 150,000 businesses using them today. Go ahead and give them a try or visit do.co slash screaming and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Elliot Murphy, the founder of Kindly Ops. Welcome to the show, Elliot. Hi, Corey. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being had. So there are a few interesting bits of overlap throughout our, I guess, history that I figure is probably as good a starting point as any. For example, we both at one point in our lives called Maine home. I escaped. You didn't. You still live there. If we can extend the word living to cover Maine. There is a lot of ice right now. (laughs) Exactly. At the time of this recording, there's apparently some sort of giant snowstorm heading your way. And it's chilly here in San Francisco as well. We're just under 60 degrees. Brutal. Exactly. I had to put on a jacket this morning. It was awful. But what also, I guess, is more interesting than, hey, we used to live in the same geographic area, is that your company focuses on providing consulting advice to companies that are dealing with regulated workloads in the cloud, uh, primarily AWS, but also a bit of Azure and GCP that are scattered in there for show as well, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So you might think fintech, biotech, all that kind of stuff. When I started my consulting company, I went through a a couple of rapid iterations. I went from, I'm a DevOps consultant, which, great, swing a dead cat. You'll hit 20 of those people that all look alike, and it becomes a race to the bottom. The second iteration, pretty rapidly, was helping with compliant workloads in AWS, specifically PCI. And one of the things that got me out of that was the fact that the job, from my perspective, was kind of miserable. 
a ancillary fact was that I had a conversation with you and I realized, wow, this is what it looks like to do that right. I'm making this look like amateur hour. So uh, when you find out you're not doing something super well and you get out of it, that often feels like it's the best path forward. It is pretty complicated at times. AWS has made it a lot easier. Oh, absolutely. Back in the days when I was working with a variety of different regulated industries as part of a full-time job, keeping up with compliance agreements and the rest with your cloud provider was a massive undertaking. Increasingly, it feels like that's changing a bit as more and more services are compliant out of the box, the requirements are lessening. And that is really easy to overlook, but it's a tremendous amount of work on the part of the cloud providers to be able to get there. Yeah, things have, things have evolved quite a lot. So only a couple of years ago, it was pretty common to need to provision EC2 instances with specific types of encryption setups so that you could run Postgres on top of them in a way that, that met your encryption at rest requirements. Now, of course, you can, you can use all different flavors of RDS with encryption in flight and at rest just out of the box. So particularly around the technical controls, so much has gotten easier. But we're also kind of seeing the requirements get a little stricter. So for example, the NIST cybersecurity framework was revised last year. And one of the things that calls out is that is that you should be doing risk analysis. And so I think we're just seeing a, a natural maturing of practice where instead of everybody trying to figure out how to put locks on things, now that that is pretty easy to do, we're trying to level up and have people think in a mature way about the actual risks that, they, that they're facing and that they're facing on behalf of their customers and try and make good decisions about how best to, best to manage those. It feels that compliance has always been a big, complicated area. And when I look back at the times that I worked for regulated employers, the technical stuff was by all means not trivial to wind up handling. But what I recall far and away beyond that was less to do with being able to check the boxes of, yes, it's encrypted, it's at rest, et cetera. Good for you. You've now solved for the problem of people break into multiple data centers and steal a bunch of drives and somehow recombine them to get the data that you care about out of it, which is not really a threat model in today's day, today's world while we're talking large cloud providers. And, and much more around the idea of building governance and controls into your business as a whole. Yeah. And so, for example, something that might be even more important than how locked up the data is, how safe the data is, is how available the data is. And also, can you get rid of stuff? What, what are your retention policies? So if you, if you look at a possible bad thing happening and look at the magnitude of the loss, it's going to cost you money in a, in a handful of different ways. Some of those ways might be around fines and judgments. We would typically call those secondary losses. So you could spend a bunch of money trying to make sure that data never gets breached, which we know is is not realistic. Or you could look at, well, we don't really need any of this debugging data for longer than two weeks. So we're going to automatically scrub that stuff away so that if a breach does happen on these log servers, there's much the, the, like the scope and magnitude of the loss is much smaller. And any fines or judgments that we got around that data would also be much smaller. One of the most terrifying aspects of GDPR day, for lack of a better term, was the pile of email I got that day from companies I could not have picked out of a police lineup sending me an email to my maiden name. I changed my name legally toward the end of 2010. 
And anything that was going by some of these names, the names that they wound up listing with different nicknames, I went by middle name for a while, I'm getting emails to a name I hadn't used in nearly 15 years. And that was terrifying. It's first, you have an awful lot of data sitting there. Secondly, if I did business with you back then, the first time you reach out to me again to tell you that we're doing business differently is 15 years later with a privacy policy update? What? That's terrible marketing. It, it was sort of a strange shock that no one gets rid of anything. Yeah, for a long time. Like, like as computing became so ubiquitous and affordable, like lots and lots of people started collecting data because we can, right? Like we might, we might think of good things to ask this data later. And the big shift with GDPR was suddenly a set of regulations applied to marketing technology stacks, whereas previously they had applied to your transaction, your, your financial processing stack, your, your healthcare data processing stack, but certainly not to your marketing stack. And so there's a whole new set of people and a whole new set of companies we're having to confront these issues around like how grown up are we being with how we're managing these systems and the fact is like everyone was was not doing great about it and the regulations sort of forced a little bit of a wake up one of the more surprising elements that i see when talking to companies who have compliance obligations is i guess their willingness to retreat into answering everything with compliance as if it was a magic word that justified or excused all kinds of different behavior patterns that tends to be a very strange conversation where you get the sense that the people wielding compliance as a bat don't really seem to grasp what it is that their obligations are and how that has been interpreted absolutely so like this Dealing with a, a big set of rules, no matter who made the rules and how much you like the rules, is frustrating to begin with and bureaucratic. And then it gets even worse when people are trying to use the rules to force you to do something that you don't think makes sense. And so like one of the things that we've been doing is insisting on an empathy building exercise whenever we are trying to help a company transition into leveling up. On, on compliance. So we've been using this, this security culture diagnostic from the book People-Centric Security by Dr. Lance Hayden. And he's actually released that survey or diagnostic under Creative Commons. So it's a fantastic tool that people can can download from his site. It's, you know, it's just a, a Word doc that you can use. And I, hopefully we can link that up in the show notes. But he outlines four different security cultures. And it's just amazing to see going through a 30-minute exercise with folks, helping them understand like which ones seem to be prominent in their environment and which ones would they like to be prominent in their environment and understand the values of each, their behavior towards each other totally changes and they start behaving with empathy and understanding. And I think kind of the key to that is that this helps you to perceive culture as not like sort of the true self that you carry around or like some very very singular, important cultural core that exists in your company. But it's really beliefs and assumptions that drive decision and actions. And that is a mental model. And suddenly when people realize that they might have a default or a preferred way of acting and deciding, but that's a mental model they're using, they can learn about other mental models and they can understand when those other models have value they're able to just be so much more helpful to each other. And so I'd like to real quick just outline those couple of those cultures, for example. Sure. One that you and I with, you know, small business owners have is autonomy culture, right? There's loose controls and you are very externally focused. You're very interested in people outside the company because there's not too many people inside the company. 
And that is super common in early stage startups and small consulting firms. That is a very, very useful way of, of working. You sort of make whatever you, you earn, whatever business you, you go out and win for yourself. You don't get anybody else sort of um, helping you and supporting you. A totally different culture would be a compliance culture, which you typically would see at a large healthcare organization where they have very tight controls and they care very much about what's outside the organization. They're externally focused in terms of living up to other people's rules. So caring a lot about becoming compliant, checking off the box on these regulations. And then a totally other perspective would be a government organization. And they're also very strict, like a healthcare organization, but totally internally focused. So a government agency, a government organization, they sort of don't look to the outside world for what's right and wrong. They don't really care about that. They decide internally what's right and wrong and good and bad and expect everyone in their organization to follow their own rules that are internally developed. As you can see, like, right, just from those, those three different cultures, like you can probably spot it a mile away. Oh, this company is behaving like this, but they'd like to behave like that. And so we need to understand the different mental models that people are using. Or companies say that they behave like one of those and in practice behave very differently. Exactly. Exactly. So when you, and, and that's like the aspirational thing of, of where the company wants to go versus if they're looking back at like, what have we actually done in practice over the last year? What I always found fascinating was the evolution of understanding as you wind up embracing different aspects of technology as things tend to evolve. I know I've told this story during a conference talk once, but I don't think I've ever told it on the podcast, where I was earlier in my career doing a project where everything lived in AWS. This was my first outing to addressing compliance in this environment. So a financial company sent one of those painful questionnaires of, oh, we're debating doing business with your company, fill out the following 80-page survey. And what I filled out addressed AWS as if it were coming from the perspective of a data center. No big deal. Yeah, You can probably figure out how that tended to work out, where I get a message a few weeks later, great, give us the, here are the following dates that we'd like to go and send our security people to tour the data center you have in Ashburn, Virginia, or Herndon, or whatever it was at the time that they were publicly admitting to. And the response to that was, oh dear. It turns out that no one gets to tour the AWS data centers. And by treating it that way and telling people that at the end, it didn't go well at all. We're, we're not allowed to tour the data center. We're the third largest bank in Omaha. Who do they think they are? Stupid online bookstore. And there was an understanding gap. What made that work more effectively in subsequent outings was be talking directly to the account managers at AWS who've answered these questionnaires a hundred times already. Here, give them the following list of paperwork. It fits in a truck. And when they're done with all of that, they want more, then have them talk to us. And magically, those doors started opening, partially because AWS got better at answering those questions and partially because the understanding of these finance companies improved as they started realizing that no matter how big they are, they're not going to get to tour an AWS data center. It wound up getting smoother as people on both sides of that conversation learned to communicate with each other on the same wavelength. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a complete reversal in how it's perceived. I would be nervous these days if someone was trying to run their own data center for doing some some critically sensitive workload. 
rather than using one of the big cloud providers, just because economies of scale, right? Like the number of security engineers working at AWS defending that infrastructure 24-7 is so much bigger than than even a big finance company is able to, to do for, for something that they're running on their on-premise. The piece that I always found fascinating was that in having these conversations with folks, the story of why public cloud was not acceptable began to hold less and less water. It went from it's new and scary and we don't trust it to our data is important and we don't want that living in the public cloud. Really? Because your bank is in the cloud, your compliance body that is going to be auditing you is in the cloud, and your tax authorities in the cloud. So what makes your data more important than any of those other three bodies who are very happy right now in the same availability zones and regions that you are currently poo-pooing? Yeah, and your military is there too. Oh yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten that piece. So there, it comes down to this story of, yeah, you're right. It's it's much safer if I have a bunch of half-awake people running out their own few racks down the street of the colo. It just doesn't work out that way. Yeah, it doesn't at all. And like, it's it's really a great time to be working on some of these things because for a long time, I was I was a little sad thinking that all the cool tech was being applied to absolutely trivial things. But it feels like over the last year, we really kind of hit this tipping point where a lot of the cool technology is now able to be applied to the most sensitive workloads. And so we can do really interesting things with medical records and with financial transactions and bring benefits to people who, who need cool features around those absolutely life-critical transactions. What's interesting to me as well is that people still tend to approach this stuff as a binary rather than a spectrum. It's fascinating that someone will naively say that a payment transaction company needs to have the same level of security controls and best practices and security policies as Twitter for pets, more or less. And it feels like that is fundamentally untrue. Right. It totally is. And so I, I think a couple of things are happening. One is that we're trying to raise the minimum bar for everyone, right? And so things like GDPR cast a very wide net and they they sort of insist on if you're processing data about customers, like you need you need to level up. What was okay five years ago is not okay today. But then beyond that, I think there is a real spectrum. And one of the, one of the things that I'm really hoping we in the tech industry learn how to do some skills we need to acquire are skills that the insurance industry has had for 100 years. And that's understanding how to think about risk, like you said, as a spectrum, as a range of probabilities with a range of possible losses, and then choose the things that we're doing to try and protect or minimize the amount of loss based on what really makes sense. So if you have $100 at risk, it doesn't make sense to spend $10,000 to protect it. Maybe it makes more sense not to do that business, or maybe it makes more sense to buy some insurance, or maybe it makes sense to have another control that is totally much less obnoxious to the people in your organization. So uh, an example I love to use is uh, we're, we're worried about these engineers, you know, out there in that cloud, turning stuff on and spending money. And, and then like, what, what if it's not working? Like, what if they run up a big bill? So that's a, that's a legitimate concern. And you, you absolutely want to have spending controls inside your company. But think about like how it feels to have a budget alarm versus a very restrictive policy about who can create new resources. You're going to have a totally different like amount of innovation inside the team and a totally different track record of retaining people with one versus the other 
but the budget alarm is going to cost you way less and tell you way sooner when something when a, you know something does go wrong and you're spending money that you don't want to be spending. And it also leads to the rise of shadow IT, people working around policy when it gets in the way of doing their job. And people get understandably upset when they're making six figures but aren't allowed to spin up a $50 a month instance without six weeks of approvals. Absolutely. It becomes working against the better interests of the company where people have to subvert process in order to effectively do their jobs. And that is never something anyone wants to see happen. The, I guess the way I tend to approach the security is from a perspective of if someone wants what you have badly enough, they will get it. So assume that the battle is already lost and think of the headline risk of when it happens. Do you want to be in the headlines for getting breached after they wound up kidnapping three of your members of your staff and putting this incredibly advanced system into place that would eventually subvert you folks over time and the world had never seen it before? Or do you want it to be because you didn't use the proper permissions policy on your S3 buckets and someone found it by accident? It, it comes to raising the bar of what it takes to subvert you. At some point, I'm sorry, your startup, no matter how effective it is, is not going to be able to withstand a coordinated assault by a nation. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's real value to shifting the thinking from pure prevention, which I think is maybe, um, it seems to be a default approach for a lot of technical folks, it's like total focus on prevention at all costs and shift from that to early detection and mitigation. And that can lead to dramatically better customer experiences and dramatically better employee experiences. So I remember the third project I worked on where I was integrating a payment gateway, I got to use Stripe. And that was amazing. I found out later on watching a meetup talk that Stripe had optimized for approving accounts quickly and disabling them quickly if they detected fraud. Whereas all of the other payment gateways I had worked for were very onerous in the signup process because they were trying to stop any fraudulent signups, whereas Stripe was optimizing for lots of signups immediately turn off any fraudulent accounts. And so as a legitimate user, I had the best experience I've ever had with a payment processor because of that mindset that they had towards security. Right. When I was selling sponsorships early on in the history of the newsletter, I was using Stripe to do it. And I needed to be able to drop an invoice that someone could pay with a credit card in front of them in about 20 minutes. And Stripe had it done in three. It was incredible. Now, if it had been fraudulent, I suspect they would have hit me with a belt, metaphorically or perhaps literally speaking, given that I know enough people over there. But the fact that it got out of my way was incredibly valuable. And I'm sure they've run the numbers, and I'm sure that there are barriers around that, where if I spin something up quickly, it's not going to instantaneously let me accept a $4 million payment and transfer that into my account. There are going to be controls and oversights to make sense. But depending on how they structure it, if the total risk is in the order of, I'm not going to be able to process more than, I don't know, $5,000 worth of transactions or whatever it is until a human has reviewed it. Well, that is a lot more manageable than I'm trying to sell this thing for $20 and I need to wait four weeks to do that. And by that point, the buyer has long since lost interest and gone away. Exactly. What it costs them in terms of fraudulent use has got to be orders of magnitude lower than what it would cost them to go the other direction in terms of dissuaded customers. Yeah. And that's where like a much more mature way of thinking about risk modeling and understanding what is the actual amount of risk that you're trying to protect against, it can totally transform the feeling people have working with those products and services in those regulated environments. Yeah. One of the more, I guess, 
counterintuitive aspects of this entire world. And this applies to people who are the developers, who are the administrators, who are the rest. 90% of your security posture will come down to some very basic things. Use a unique password for every site. Use a password manager and enable two-factor auth wherever you can. If you do nothing other than those three things, you are going to be so much better off than any other ridiculous five steps down the ladder things you can do to start optimizing these things. You can run incredibly complex security software that does amazing things. But if you aren't controlling the basic stuff, the permissions, the access control, then there's really no point to it. That's like building a incredibly thick, amazing wall and forgetting to lock the door. Yeah, absolutely. One of the f- most fascinating things for me as I've gotten deeper and deeper into risk management over the last couple of years was realizing as you start to do this like proper analysis, there is a standard model called FAIR, Factor Analysis of Information Risk, it's, that's super helpful. But as you start to like actually calculate out in dollars, like what are our dollars at risk here? More often than not, it shows you have things that are over-controlled, that you're spending too much on protecting, rather than what I would have expected, that it's always showing how much more you need to add controls in place. But just as many times, it shows like you're way over-controlling this stuff. It's not actually reducing your exposure any. Let's simplify things. And that becomes anathema. The, the problem is, is that effective security personnel and compliance personnel understand that there's a limit of what they can ask for and what they can't. The naive approach of lock down everything, Captain Edge case security and the rest will only ever communicate via signal. They run Linux only on hardware that they control. They don't use anything that's made in the last five years because they want to lock it all down themselves. Everything's encrypted. And you talk to them, cool, how do I email you? And the answer is, well, first you have to install GPG. And it goes down this entire list of making them almost irrelevant to any conversation. I think everyone who's worked in this space long enough knows at least five people that that could be referring to that they know from their personal histories. And I get it. I love that the idea that you can go that deep. I'm not working for the NSA. I send out a snarky, sarcastic newsletter. And for my personal use case, the dangerous access that I have that is gated by all the stuff you would expect starts and stops with access to my client's AWS bills. And I keep a minimum of those that I need to do my job. And then, novel idea, I get rid of them when I'm done. So the window for exploit is relatively small for what I do, and it doesn't get you much. That does not mean that I could pass any of these compliance regimes today, but I don't need to. Being, if I were to go down that path of building out everything that I do for my entire business across everything is in a compliant way... I would pay for that with an awful lot of velocity. And for what I do, the risk does not justify taking that level of care and diligence. There very well may come a day where that changes. But today, I do what makes sense for the risk profile that I live within. The danger comes in is if that risk profile changes and I don't notice or take appropriate steps when that happens. Yeah, and there's a built-in there's a built-in sort of tension against like preventing anybody from, you know, trying to prevent a data breach with another responsibility that folks in these environments have, which is a data availability, that you still have the data. And so there's sort of a, a funny failure mode in um, encrypted backups and, and all of this encryption everywhere, which is if you don't have the keys, you can't get the data, it's gone forever. And so you also have the risk of availability loss, which can lead to fines and judgments and lost business and all of that stuff. And so you're absolutely right. like. 
all of it needs to be balanced. There is there is a spectrum, a, r- a range of choices. Some of those choices are going to be unique to your business, but then some of them, you know, just you talked about that bar, are just available to you in the cloud, and that's really cool. Surfacing a lot of these decisions up to the appropriate level is also something that tends to be overlooked at times, where it becomes very easy for an individual contributor who's configuring something to make one of these decisions on the fly. And that works in small environments that are not particularly regulated. That goes away really quickly once you start having to be responsible for that for other folks. The last thing in the world a CISO wants is being told of a security posture problem that someone randomly decided in the dark of night three years ago and no one ever revisited. So it comes down to also understanding the the organizational requirements. Yeah, and this is starting to bubble up even on the the agenda for board members who are responsible at the, the highest levels for oversight and governance of an organization. They're certainly not making decisions about how to protect things, but they want to know. They really want to know from the CISO and from, from the rest of the staff, how are we on cybersecurity? How are we compared to where we were six months ago? How much should we be spending on it? And re- referencing that insurance stuff again, it's really important, I think, that folks working around this in the tech industry learn the techniques for quantitative risk analysis. There's a, a nonprofit trade organization called CRS, Society of Information Risk Analysts. I volunteer and help them. And this is something that other industries have been dealing with operational risk for decades and much longer. And there are techniques that are well understood that we can directly apply to cybersecurity risk and sort of express those issues, those trade-offs that we're facing in terms of a business case, in terms of dollars at risk, in terms of how much it would cost to reduce a certain amount of risk. And that is something that everybody at the board meeting can understand. When I was going through my own business insurance process on my side, I was asked what my DR strategy was. And the honest answer was, cool, if the internet or power goes out of my house, I'll go work from a coffee shop. And this led to a back and forth where they wanted to know, okay, well, What if your data center goes offline? Well, I keep everything inside of AWS for what I'm working on, so that isn't really a concern. Okay, what if they lose an entire region? Well, permanently? Then I'm really not worried very much because first, most of what I'm building is is replicable, and secondly, I'll be too busy printing money from people who did not plan for this and have serious business concerns there, and suddenly I'm charging 10 times what I used to to help get sites back online. And in the event of a world-shaking event that is almost cataclysmic in nature, at past a certain point, yeah, my, my DR plan doesn't matter anymore. Well, well, what happens if something happens to you? I'm an independent business owner. My business closes. The end. That is, <laughs> that is the nature of what I do. I'm not necessarily building something here to outlive me. So sorry, folks, the podcast and the newsletter and even the cost consultancy go away if I get hit by a truck. My apologies in advance. Yeah, and that's just a, a level of risk that's appropriate for a small business, right? That we're, we're not going to defend against those. You just accept them. What's also strange, too, is when you hear people talking about this from a business continuity perspective, the question is always, what if you get hit by a truck? Instead of the much more likely scenario of, what happens when you walk in and give your two weeks notice because you're changing jobs? We understand that you're looking at an 18 to 36-month average tenure for most people in the tech space. But we still talk about now magically you're going to stay at the company that you're at now until you retire with a gold pocket watch in 25 years. That doesn't happen anymore. And instead, we either turn into a lottery winner where this is a great, amazing thing happening or something horrifying and you get hit by the bus. 
as opposed to you leave and go on to your next job, as is natural in the cycle of things. It winds up being an edge of disaster recovery and business continuity planning that I always found to be farcical. I had the same problem when I was asked, okay, so we have a site that's an hour away. So how, what's your plan to get there in the event that the city is in chaos? And the answer was a very honest, I'm going to be taking care of my family. And then they go down the list of, okay, your family's okay, but now you want to do work and the internet is broken. Cool. And you somehow think that in that in that scenario, San Francisco is going to be intact and or I'm still going to be working here rather than printing money from everyone else who's willing to pay me multiples of my salary. And suddenly I wasn't invited to those meetings anymore. Yeah, it's it's one of those cases, like like we were saying earlier, where you just really have to think about like, okay, what's what are the actual costs of not showing up to work for a week? And then what would it cost to make it so that we could show up to work for that week. And as soon as you see that it's going way out of whack, like the costs are far exceeding the value you're actually trying to preserve. Like why, why keep belaboring the point? They should be just cutting that conversation short. Yeah. And it it just winds up being something that sort of only exists in a very niche scenario. And the disaster you plan for, by the way, is never the disaster that hits. It's always going to be something new and exciting and complicated. Right. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has been fun. If people want to learn more about the nonsense that it is that you and I, once upon a time, do for a living, where can they wind up learning more? Check out our website, kindlyops.com. We have a knowledge base there, which has some free words and some free software around risk analysis and how to think about these things, maybe how to get people off your back at work a little bit if you're having to deal with it. Yeah, so kindlyops.com. I would absolutely endorse the stuff you folks do. In the past, when I've had weird compliance questions, you are generally my first stop. That is not a paid endorsement. That is simply the reality that you are better at this than I am, and I don't want to do it. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you so much once again for your time. I appreciate it. Elliot Murphy, Kindly Ops. I'm Corey Quinn, and this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.